Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. In 1953, Egypt's president announced plans for the construction of a massive dam on the Nile River called the Aswan High Dam. It was to be 375 feet high, 11,000 feet across. It was finished in 1970. In 1971, they had a grand opening ceremony and water began flowing through 12 turbines that had a capacity of 10 billion kilowatt hours of power. And this power that was unleashed through this dam was able to light up every city in Egypt. Every city in Egypt. During the construction, they didn't stop the Nile River. They let it continue to flow. Even as the reservoir was filling, it was still flowing downstream because there were people downstream that depended on it for their life. They got their water from it. They washed their clothes in it. They had water for their crops from it. They sailed on it. They wrote songs about it. It was their very life. And yet, when they finished the dam and the water began flowing through those turbines, a power was unleashed that went far beyond the few people downstream. It was enough power to light up the entire country. Pentecost is like the opening of the Aswan High Dam in that a power the power of the Holy Spirit was unleashed not just to pre-Pentecost days being the, the river of life and blessing to God's people. They depended on it. But post-Pentecost, this river of God's blessing would now flow beyond Israel to the known parts of the world, to the entire world. 
that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would now be unleashed and spread to every tongue, every nation, every tribe. Question is how? How does the Holy Spirit, coming out of Pentecost, how does the Holy Spirit empower such a fruitful mission that we have seen for the past 2,000 years? First, the Holy Spirit creates hope. Creates hope. Verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. Why is this significant? Well, the word Pentecoste in Greek means 50th. So on the 50th day, they were all gathered in one place. Now, what's the significance of the 50th day when the Holy Spirit would come down? Well, in the Old Testament, God's people celebrated their redemption and salvation through a series of annual feasts. The first feast they would celebrate was Passover. It was also called the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days later, they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which was a feast that celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. First fruits simply being that when that first piece of fruit ripens, it was a guarantee of a, an abundant harvest to come. Now, all of these feasts in Israel's history were foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, at the very same time as a Passover lamb, the lamb was being sacrificed in the temple at Passover. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days later, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, at this point in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Jesus sent his Spirit to empower and enable his people to proclaim the gospel. And we see here at Pentecost the first fruits of the church. What we'll learn next week in Peter's sermon 3,000 people are saved. 3,000 people come to know Christ. And so this first fruits of the church is just the beginning of an abundant harvest to come. Now you say, what's the significance of all that? The timing of Jesus' death, resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit lining up with the feasts, feast of first fruits, feast of weeks, for a, a Jew would have been so incredibly reassuring. It would have created and stirred hope that salvation doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God, that all of God's plans have unfolded through time. Everything was perfect. It was nothing was haphazard. And so what they heard on Pentecost when 3,000 souls were saved and they understood that was first fruits, they had this reassurance that there was a mighty harvest to come. And that harvest has been reaped for 2,000 years since. If you're here and you're trusting Jesus Christ, you are part of that harvest that was promised at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit 
is moving. If you've ever grown a vegetable garden, then you know what first fruits are. Right? Imagine growing a vegetable garden and, and you grow tomatoes, let's say, and, and those tomatoes start to grow and they're green on the vine. And, and you're wondering, you're hoping for those tomatoes to at one point turn from green to red and ripen. But sometimes, some years, for a variety of reasons, they never ripen. They just stay green on the vine, and it's, and it's so incredibly discouraging. And as you move into the next growing season and try again and grow tomatoes again, you can be very pessimistic and very discouraged. What breaks the discouragement? What breaks the pessimism? It's that first time that one of those green tomatoes turns red and ripens. And you know that when that happens, there is more to come like that on the vine. And so it is with the Spirit at Pentecost. You know, 3,000 souls were saved, and that was the promise. That was the assurance that that was just the beginning, that the Spirit was going to continue over centuries and centuries to gather his people to Christ, and he continues to gather fruit today as people place their faith in Jesus Christ. This should create vast amounts of hope and anticipation in two ways. First, your life is never beyond the reach of God's redemption in Christ. You may have made a mess of your life. You may have made awful decisions that have been hurtful to you and others. You may have been in the darkest places, maybe currently are in the darkest places places you wouldn't even want to admit to someone. And you may look at your life and say, my life is unredeemable. I have just gone too far. And yet the reason that you're hopeless is because you're seeing it through your eyes. Through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, there is hope. And there's not an unredeemable life. Humanly speaking, you may say so, but according to the Holy Spirit, Spirit's a master. And some of you have that testimony. The Spirit's a master of going into the messiest situations, the darkest places, and rescuing someone and bringing them to Christ. Your life is never beyond the reach of God's redemption. Now, the second way in which the first fruits of Pentecost birth hope and birth anticipation is this, that the lives of those around you are never beyond God's redemption in Christ. You may have people that you love deeply, people that you long to see come to Christ as you have, as the Spirit breathed life into you, and yet you look at their life and you say, I just don't know what's going to ever happen. It just seems like it's beyond hope. I have a friend who was an atheist who was preparing to end his life because things had gotten so dark. And the Holy Spirit rescued him and brought him to Christ when no one thought that it was humanly possible. The first fruits of Pentecost create hope and create anticipation that lives are being changed, 
that lives will be changed in Christ. How does the Holy Spirit empower mission? He creates hope. Second, though, he overcomes barriers. The Holy Spirit overcomes barriers. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what were these other tongues? Verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The other tongues were the languages of the nations that were gathered in Jerusalem for this annual Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. These were Jews that had been scattered in exile centuries before that had lived in these nations learned the languages, and now they're in Jerusalem, and they're hearing the gospel in their own language. The Holy Spirit overcame the language barrier that was present to proclaim Christ. And this overcoming of the language barrier was supernatural. The disciples were supernaturally enabled to speak these other languages. They were enabled to do something they could not do on their own to bring the gospel to the crowds that were gathered. And the supernatural nature of this is highlighted in verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Their Galilean accent was obvious. It would be like speaking Chinese with a southern twang. It's pretty obvious that these were Galileans. And, not a, and on top of that, there was a stereotype of the day that Galileans were generally uneducated. We see this a couple chapters later in Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. In other words, there was no human explanation for what happened here. These men were empowered to do something they could not and would not have done on their own. There was only a divine explanation, and that's highlighted by the image of fire in verse 3. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Fire in the scriptures symbolizes God's presence. The covenant God makes with Abraham, God passes between the animal pieces as a flaming torch, fire pot. When God appears to Moses in the wilderness, he appears to him in a burning bush. The bush is on fire. When God comes down to Mount Sinai to be with his people and to give them the law, fire comes down on the mountain. And here in Acts chapter 2, fire comes down. Tongues of fire. Tongues meaning speech. Fire meaning God's presence. And when the fire rested on them, they began to speak. They began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of these different languages. It was absolutely miraculous. It was supernatural. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on someone. They begin to speak 
testify, proclaim in word and deed the mighty works of God, what God has done in Jesus Christ. These men did what they could not and would not have done on their own. The Holy Spirit overcame the language barrier. The Holy Spirit overcomes barriers today. And I would say probably for most of you, the barrier to you freely proclaiming the mighty work of God, what he's done in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit is probably not a language barrier. It could be, but most likely it's another barrier and it's one of the most common barriers that we face. And that is the barrier of fear. And that fear comes in two forms. It comes in the fear of failure. It comes in the fear of rejection. Fear of failure. If I share the good news of Jesus with this person and they just don't respond, they reject it. Or, or when I'm talking to them, they ask me a question and I don't have an answer for it. I don't know what to say. Or I give them an answer and I find out hours later when I go home, it was completely wrong. And I don't want to fail. So I'm just going to stay quiet. Or the fear of rejection. If, if I talk openly about Jesus, will I lose friends? Or if I cross over from weather and sports to a spiritual conversation and begin speaking of Jesus, will people shun me? Will I be rejected? The beauty of the gospel is that God understands this. When he came in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which is basically Jesus commanding his disciples and by extension us to be witnesses and to make disciples and to proclaim the good news, he bookends the Great Commission with comforts that address both of these fears. At the beginning of the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. Jesus says, I have the authority to change someone's heart. You don't have that authority, so you can't fail. You can't fail because you're not changing hearts. You're simply proclaiming the good news. I change hearts, Jesus says. And because Jesus has the authority to change hearts and him alone, there is no failure and there's no fear of failure. End of the Great Commission. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's at the end that he addresses the, the fear of rejection. Jesus says, you may be rejected by friends or family members, but I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The one relationship in your life that you can't afford to lose, which is Christ, you can't lose. So Jesus addresses both of these fears. It was 155 AD when persecution was rippling through the Roman Empire against Christians. Massive persecution against those who had placed their faith in Jesus. And the persecution made its way to the city of Smyrna, and the pro-council of Smyrna had gotten caught up in this persecution and made the announcement 
and made the declaration that the bishop of Smyrna, that's basically the pastor of Smyrna, was to be found, arrested, brought into the public arena, and executed. And so that's what happened. The bishop's name was Polycarp. He was found, he was brought into this public arena with thousands of spectators gathered, screaming for his blood. And the pro-council of Smyrna had, I guess you could say, maybe a little bit of compassion to give Polycarp one last chance to live. And so in front of the crowds, he said to Polycarp, curse Jesus Christ and live. The crowd waited. How was this 86-year-old man going to respond? This is what he said. 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my King and Lord? And with that, Polycarp was executed. The Holy Spirit empowers you, enables you, to speak of Jesus Christ with boldness and with courage, no matter what the cost. Question is, what fear is gripping you today? What fear is keeping you silent? What fear keeps you quiet about the one who has done you no wrong, the one who has saved you? What fear has stripped you of your boldness and of your courage? How have you lost sight of the Holy Spirit's power to overcome your fear so that you can proclaim Christ in word and deed? How does the Holy Spirit empower mission? He creates hope and anticipation He overcomes barriers, and finally, he breathes life. He breathes life. This account of Pentecost is closely connected with the story of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11. It's in Genesis 11 that the people attempt to build a city They attempt to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And it says in Genesis 11 that they do this to make a name for themselves. In other words, these people gather together and are attempting to maximize their power and maximize their glory and maximize their autonomy from God. They're seeking an identity apart from God. They're seeking meaning and satisfaction and success apart from God. It's no different today. No different today. We seek to get from the created world what only God can give. So they were on this project to make their stand in autonomy against God. And what does God do? 
says he comes down and he confused their languages so they couldn't talk to each other anymore. They couldn't understand each other. And so the project came to an end and they were scattered. God came down in judgment on their sin and idolatry and sent them into exile. He, he scattered them. It's here in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, that we see a similar word. It says that the people gathered were bewildered or confused. In the Tower of Babel story, they were confused because they couldn't understand each other. Now in Acts 2, they're confused because they can understand each other. It's the reversal. It's the reversal of Babel. And notice who's experiencing this. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, meaning Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. That's what a proselyte is. So you had the Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem for this feast from all the surrounding nations. These were the Jews that had been centuries earlier, many years earlier, sent into exile because of their sin and idolatry. So God comes down to the people of Babel and in judgment sends them into exile because of their sin. God comes down years later to the people of Israel and in judgment sends them into exile because of their sin and idolatry. And again, here in Acts 2, God comes down but this time not to judge his people and send them into exile, this time to save his people and to gather them out of spiritual exile. This is the reversal of Babel. John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to come down and bring judgment, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came down not in judgment, but in grace to save. The question is, how does Jesus save through his spirit, through what we see here happening at Pentecost? Well, in the same way that the image of fire is important to this passage, so is the image of wind. So is the image of wind. Verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, we, we think wind and immediately think you know, storm, hurricane winds. But wind means spirit or breath. In fact, in the ancient languages of Hebrew and Greek, which are the two languages of the Old and New Testament, wind, breath, and spirit are, are almost interchangeable. So we see, for example, at creation in Genesis 1-2, the Lord was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, or the breath, or the wind, the breath of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. The breath of God was hovering, getting ready to create. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils 
the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And now in Acts 2, we have a mighty rushing wind filling the house. That wind was the breath of God. The breath of God ready to be breathed out. If you're here this morning and you are alive, which at this point means every one of you, God has breathed into you once already. When you were born, God breathed life into you and you became physically alive. But to become spiritually alive, he has to breathe into you again. There's a second breathing of God that has to happen in your life. Everyone has experienced the first breath of God. You're physically alive. But to become spiritually alive, and I'll explain that in a second, God has to breathe into you a second time. That's what conversion is. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you trust what he has done for you, dying on the cross to take away your sin, and you believe that he is the only way to be saved and to be one with God. When you believe, God breathes into you by his Holy Spirit spiritual life. You say, what does it mean to be spiritually alive? It means that the joy, the comfort, the pleasure, the affirmation, the approval, the power, the control, the security that you have found intermittently and temporarily through physical things in this world, physically alive, you now find in Jesus Christ. That is when you are spiritually alive. And that's the second breath that you need. If you're here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, then you don't have that second breath and you need it. You need God to breathe into you. And he breathes into you upon you simply believing in placing your faith in Jesus Christ. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down, not in judgment to exile people, but in grace to save people and gather people out of spiritual exile. It was a move of grace at Pentecost. And it was all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that the sin had been dealt with through his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit breathes into you, and when the Spirit breathes into you, you then breathe out to others. Here's the question. In your relationships, I want to th think about all your relationships, work, home, friend, marriage, children, every possible relationship that you're in, the people you interact with, do you lead with grace or do you lead with judgment? 
Do you breathe grace to people or do you breathe judgment to people? Now, you may say, I don't know the difference. What do you mean by that? I don't know how to answer that. So let me, let me ask a few diagnostic questions. When you're interacting with, a, with someone, whatever relationship it may be, do you lead with what that person should or shouldn't do to be right with God or to get right with God? Or do you lead with what God has already done for that person in Christ to make that person right with God? In other words, do you lead with what the person should do? Or do you lead with what God has already done for that person? Now, there is place and there is space in right times where you exhort and admonish someone who is in sin or stuck in a horrible place and they need counsel, but there's a place for that. But do you lead with grace? Do you breathe out Grace. And the reason I ask that, it is the grace of Jesus Christ that changes people. The law never changes someone. It can, it can tell someone how they should be behaving. It has no power to change. Only the grace of Jesus Christ can. And that's why it's one of the core values of Christ Church East. This is how it reads in, in our expression of our values. We aren't into scorekeeping earning points, or balancing the books with God. Grace liberates by putting us into right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. Our security lies in the status God gives us in his son, not a status we gain through our performance. The same spirit that empowered God's people at Pentecost to bring the gospel to all the nations and the people that were gathered is the same spirit today that empowers you to bring the gospel to the people that God puts in your influence and puts in your path. And the Holy Spirit does this in power by creating hope, by stirring hope in you in anticipation of lives being changed. And the Holy Spirit does this by overcoming barriers, primarily your barrier of fear. And the Holy Spirit does this by breathing life into others just as he has breathed life into you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this one-time redemptive act of Pentecost that was the first fruits of, a, of a, an abundant harvest to come. Thank you that the promise of a harvest nearly 2,000 years ago is coming to fruition century after century today. There are those of us here today, having put faith in Jesus Christ, that are a product of this first fruits of Pentecost. And Father, it gives us hope that there's more abundant harvest to come. 
that lives are being changed, that Holy Spirit, you are stirring hope, you're overcoming barriers, you're breathing life into people. Would you give us eyes to see that? Would we see the world around us and people around us, not through our own eyes, but through the eyes of your spirit that would generate anticipation and generate hope that our world is being changed, that people we love dearly can be changed because people like us have been changed. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.